Hello and welcome to another podcast of History Repeated. The first few podcasts we did focused on the formation of the country, the constitution, roles and responsibilities of the executive branch, legislative, judicial. We got into voting. We got into campaign financing, the rules and regulations of the road. And now we're going to switch gears a little bit and go into some of our presidents and what they accomplished in each of their terms. So we're going to start with the very first president, George Washington. And with us, as always, we have Gene Anzanakis, our resident history buff. Okay, so what we're looking to do in the next series of podcasts is to really paint a full picture of our first few presidents. Who were they? What made them tick? What were the events that really set the course for their terms in office? So often when we are teaching about presidents, we give sound bites. And people tend to remember little pieces here and there of each of our founding fathers. But it's important to not just talk about all of the positive things. I think we also need to give a very realistic picture of who these men were and what they did in the time period in which they lived. So George Washington grew up on a plantation in Virginia. Like most wealthy young men at that time period, he was privately tutored at home. He began his career as a land surveyor and was a member of the Virginia militia and fought in the French and Indian War. He was eventually put in charge of the entire militia of Virginia. He was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses, which is the first legislative body in the New World. And after the death of his older half-brother, he inherited Mount Vernon and expanded the house and plantation significantly. He also married a woman uh, named Martha, who was a widow, uh, you will see in our next couple of cod, uh, podcasts that that's a bit of a trend uh, for some of our founding fathers to marry wealthy widows, and they also inherited their wealth and their slaves as well, but we'll get a little bit more into that. What people tend to know about George Washington is, you know, of course, he's the first president of the United States, and that he was the general in the American Revolution that leads the colonies to victory. What people often don't really know about George Washington is the fact that he was also a slave owner, which we're also going to get into in our podcast. But during the American Revolution, you know, one of the things that people don't realize is that the British really despised him. I mean, when you, you talk about perspective, when pe people in England, for example, are learning about the American Revolution, they're not calling George Washington a hero. They're probably calling him a traitor. And for George Washington, he used very different military tactics than the British used. And it's part of what helped the colonies to victory. You know, people often say an incorrect fact about George Washington that he had wood teeth. He did not have wood teeth. He actually had 40 different sets of dentures. He could never quite find a pair that he liked and it was actually that pain in his teeth that kept him up at night. And while he would be up at night kind of pacing the floors, he came up with all of these different tactics and kind of reinvents guerrilla warfare. You know, at the time of the American Revolution, it was considered gentleman's warfare. You would wear brightly colored uniforms. You'd pipe your pipes and drum your drums and you'd march towards each other in a field. And so for George Washington not to do that in battles, you know, the British were really, you know, grinded their gears a bit. And so for George Washington, he had 
like I said, many different sets of dentures. Most of his teeth were actually made out of ivory or they were taken from cadavers. And people also sold their teeth. You'd have to imagine somebody would have to be pretty hard up to be willing to sell one of their front teeth because obviously those would be, you'd get paid more money for those. People are less willing to sell a front teeth than they are, you know, a molar. But by the time George Washington is elected president, he actually has one tooth left. Um, But the reason why I think people say George Washington has wooden teeth is that um, his dentist, and again, these are not like the highly trained dentists we have today. These are kind of like witch doctors using powders and creams and, you know, trying to help you not lose your teeth. But the dentist's last name was Greenwood. And the sign above the dentist's door said Greenwood Teeth. And over time, you know, the story got told and the story got told and, you know, you get wood teeth. But George Washington did not, in fact, um, have wooden teeth. But George Washington serves two terms as president from 1789 to 1797. He is elected unanimously, which, of course, never happens again. And if you listen to our podcast on the Electoral College, you will remember that at one point in time, each elector in the Electoral College could cast two votes. The person with the most votes became president, and the person with the second highest votes became vice president. Each elector that was able to cast a vote cast one vote for George Washington. So that's why we say he was unanimously elected. As president, George Washington set many precedents. A precedent is an example that is followed as if it were a law. He was the first person to have this important role. One of the famous quotes from George Washington is, I walk on untrodden ground. He was very well aware that nobody came before him. He was very well aware that he was setting the stage for people to follow his lead. And he had the importance and the difficulty of being the first person to ever do something. Prior to him, the executive branch only existed on paper. He had to bring the role of the president to life. He had to ensure that the presidency was strong and revered, but that it didn't mirror a king or a dictator. One of the biggest concerns was, well, what do we call this new president? You know, do we call him his majesty, the president of the United States? And George Washington very modestly said, simply call me Mr. President. Another one of his precedents is that when he was finished saying his oath of office, he added, so help me God to the end of it. And of course, the serving of two terms and then stepping down. People thought he was crazy for stepping down. They begged him to run for a third term. And, you know, his response was something along the lines of, you just fought a war to get rid of one King George. Why would you readily accept a new one? During his presidency, he was sworn in as president in New York City. New York City was our nation's first capital. It held that title for two years, and he was sworn in at a building called Federal Hall. George Washington and his family lived at Osgood House for about 10 months, and they paid rent of about $845 a year. Eventually, he moved into Alexander Maycomb House. It was much larger and in a quieter part of the city. He had a staff of 20, including seven slaves, which he had brought with him from Mount Vernon. Both buildings have since been demolished in New York City, but there are plaques at the former site of each building. And you can also still go and visit Federal Hall. If you haven't, if you live in New York City, it's a must-see. 
In August of 1790, Washington went to Philadelphia, which became the temporary capital until the building would be completed along the Potomac. Washington would finish his term at what would become known as the President's House in Philadelphia, which was also later demolished. I think they demolished it to build public toilets, oddly enough. Um, Adams would spend the majority of his presidential term in Philadelphia as well. Slavery was slowly being abolished in Pennsylvania. George Washington argued that because he was technically a resident of Virginia and that slavery was allowed there, that he was allowed to keep his slaves with him there. At the time of Washington's death, he owned around 317 slaves. In his will, he decreed that upon his wife's death, his slaves should be freed. Well, he only actually had the right to, flee, to free the slaves that belonged to him. And so this only freed about half uh, of the slaves that George Washington owned because many were inherited by his wife's grandchildren. I, you know, I had mentioned earlier in the podcast that he had married a, a young widow, Martha, who herself came with money, herself came with slaves, and her children and grandchildren from her first marriage inherited those slaves. What is often not discussed about our fa founding fathers is that many of them were slaveholders. You know, if you go to Mount Vernon, you will see the slave quarters and the vast array of jobs and trades that Washington slaves were forced to do. If you go to mountvernon.org, which is a great resource, there are wonderful virtual tours and a significant amount of information about the treatment, the lives, and most importantly, the names and descriptions of many of the enslaved people at Mount, at Mount Vernon. You know, it wasn't just George Washington that made Mount Vernon so spectacular. It was the people that lived there, that worked there, that died there. When we discuss all of the wonderful, important things about George Washington, it is also important that we talk about the fact that like many people during the time in which he lived, he was a slave owner. George Washington purchased slaves. He inherited slaves. Over the course of his life, his views on slavery changed Yet he kept human beings enslaved. Time, and especially death, has a way of removing the bad from a person's legacy. We have to recognize both sides of Washington in our classrooms. Washington's presidency, he left a significant presidential legacy. And presidential legacies aren't just defined by the individual, but by the events that take place during his presidency. So some of the domestic issues that take place are establishing the government. So we have the creation of the legislative and judicial branches. Again, this is all information that's on paper. How do we make it come to life? How do we put those words on paper in action? And so some of the laws that were passed were the Judiciary Act of 1789, and this structured the judicial branch. We have six justices at this time in history, John Jay is the first chief justice, and this act also established the lower courts. The nation's capital. It is eventually formally moved to an area along the Potomac. It would be called the District of Columbia and eventually would become known as Washington, D.C. in honor of our first president. This movement of the capital becomes a bit of a peace offering uh, when we have to figure out what to do with our national debt, which I'll get into in a little bit. Political parties begin to emerge. We see the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, who at the time were often referred to as anti-Federalists by their opponents. Revolutionary war debts. 
totaled around $25 million. States owned tremendous amounts of debt. Some, debt, some states had paid their debts. Um, the new strong central government would assume or take on state debts. And this was critical. You know, this was Alexander Hamilton's brainchild. His idea was that as long as the United States continued to owe foreign governments money, they would ensure its continued survival. I mean, think about it. If somebody owes you money, you've got your eyes on them. You want to make sure they pay you back. And the United States would be no different. If individual states owed Spain money or France money, they would ensure that that state continued to exist. But if the federal government assumed those debts, they would ensure that the federal government continued to exist because they wanted their money back. The creation of a national bank would create federally backed currency. And this was essential. Our money had to mean something. It had to be backed. And Alexander Hamilton, as the first Treasury Secretary of the United States, he devised this genius plan. But many Southern states had paid their debts already. They were not happy. They're saying, we paid our debts. Why, why are we going to pay again for the Northern states who haven't paid their debt? And so the olive branch of putting the nation's capital in the South was made. It sealed the deal, and it was done. Then we have the Whiskey Rebellion, which we also mentioned in a previous podcast. Hamilton proposed a tax on whiskey to help alleviate the Revolutionary War debts. For many Northeastern farmers, whiskey was a very profitable and in some cases was used even as a form of currency. And so we talked about how these farmers rebelled and the federal government put down this rebellion. This particular event was proof that this new strong central government was going to work. Some of the foreign issues that influenced Washington's presidency were the French Revolution. In 1789, French revolutionaries sought help and support from the United States. Washington issued a strict policy of neutrality and isolationism. The United States was a new country. We were crippled in debt. And yet France was our main ally during the revolution. And so this is just one of the factors is that that's going to increase political tensions within the United States. Great Britain and France are at war. The British are seizing ships headed to France. Hundreds of U.S. ships are taking economically. This is a huge problem, which eventually led to something called Jay's Treaty of 1795. This was a very unpopular treaty between the United States and Britain. It led to an increase in political divisions. Great Britain was seizing U.S. merchant ships. They were impressing our sailors. Impressing sailors means they were basically taking U.S. citizens off of our trading ships, bringing them back to England, and forcing them to fight in the war. And yet, George Washington still wants to remain neutral. Um, and so you have people who are clamoring for war. You have people who are clamoring for peace. And Washington is saying, we're a new country. We cannot get involved. We must remain neutral. We cannot uh, create permanent alliances. We cannot get involved in foreign conflict. The British military was still in forts along the Northwest Territory. The American Revolution War is over. Why are British soldiers still here? The United States we hadn't paid back pre-revolutionary war debt. 
We were seizing land that had belonged to Tories. Tories were the nickname given to individuals who wanted to remain faithful to the crown. And so the United States, we agreed to pay our pre-war debt. Britain removed the military from forts and paid for the seized merchant ships. We had avoided war. Pickney's Treaty, or is sometimes referred to as the Treaty of San Lorenzo, in 1795. This defined the border between the United States and Florida, which was owned by Spain. Uh, Paying of the day, the day of Algiers, the leader of Algiers, um, Barbary Coast pirates were seizing American merchant ships in the Mediterranean. Sailors were captured and held for ransom. Um, Many European countries would often pay tribute or a bribe to avoid wars. And they looked at the United States as being no different. You want your sailors back, you got to pay us. And so the United States paid the day of Algiers to avoid war again, following this policy of neutrality. At the time, they paid around $1 million in order to protect ships in the Mediterranean. At the end of Washington's second term many people wanted him to run again and he said absolutely not I must step down and so in Washington's farewell address which was written mostly by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton he warns this new nation of three major things and it's almost as if he had a crystal ball that he could look into the future and see the things that would pose the biggest threat to this new country He told Americans, avoid sectional feelings. He told Americans, avoid political parties. They are divisive. And he told Americans to steer clear of permanent alliances. Now, what do these things mean? When we say avoid sectional feelings, what we're saying is, you know, people tended to only care about the issues that concerned their region. So northern states were industrial. Southern states are predominantly agrarian. And so they tended to only support issues that would benefit them. And if you, for example, look at some of the weaknesses that Southern states had during the Civil War, it was all the things they refused to support. Things like the creation of banks, things like the creation of railroad lines. They didn't need them. They didn't want them. They didn't think they were necessary, but they were. When we talk about avoiding political parties, within Washington's own cabinet, which is a group of advisors, you have people who will eventually be in different political parties. John Adams and Alexander Hamilton being Federalists, uh, Thomas Jefferson being a Democratic Republican, and there was a lot of infighting. And all of these issues that Washington is trying to deal with during his presidency is being stalled by the debates between these two sides. He's saying, let's just get things done. When they're talking about steering clear of permanent alliances, Great Britain and France are at war with each other. Federalists wanted us to support Britain. Democratic Republicans wanted us to support France. Didn't matter which side we agree to support, we're going to be at war with the other one. So he's saying we must remain neutral. We're too new. We have to get steady on our feet before we can worry about what's going on in other places. So spoiler alert, we didn't listen. At the end of Washington's second term, he retires to Mount Vernon. 
He kept meticulous records, even while president, and demanded weekly updates about the daily happenings on the plantation. He received visitors regularly and kept in contact with members of Adams's cabinet, which were for the most part the same people who served in his cabinet. So he steps down from power, but he very much stays involved. During Adams's presidency, he was made head of the military in response to the XYZ affair and French aggression, only under the agreement that Alexander Hamilton would be his second in command. George Washington wrote his own 42-page will, and he died on December 14, 1799, of a throat infection at the age of 67. When you look at portraits or paintings of George Washington, you see this image of an old man, yet he dies at the age of 67. It's pretty young. And you consider what he accomplished in his lifetime. In the course of 67 years, he's a land surveyor, he's a plantation owner, a slave owner, a military man, a general, a member of the Continental Congress, and president of the United States. All right, George Washington, founding father, first president. What we are looking to get across here is the happenings during the presidential terms. There are many documentaries on the complete life and times of George Washington. In fact, there's one from this year in 2020 from the History Channel, which is quite good. Check back with us soon and leave a review on one of our podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, iTunes, Spotify, and more. Drop us a line. We take requests. For Jean-Anne Zanakis, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and thank you for listening to History Repeated.